first I thought it said bisexual and I was like, that's painful anal. Well, welcome everyone to another episode of Geology on the Rocks, your one-stop audio shop for all things rocks and rocking out. So a brief overview of this evening's episode will include the intros and hellos, followed by a triple junction news. <laughs> <laughs> I ran out of breath there, Brian. So our main discussion will dive into all things geomorphology. And between the bars of our main discussion, we present to you another Mineral Minute. And before signing off, we will close things out with another That Freaking Rocks. So <laughs> a big thank you to all of our listeners out there for allowing us to be played between your earballs and for spending your time with us each week. If you'd like to reach out to us, whether it be for episode ideas, answers you're wanting questioned, or simply to tell us about all the times we were wrong, you can reach us at geologyotr at gmail.com, or you can find us on Instagram at geology on the rocks podcast. Hashtag your geology daddies. Yeah. It looks as if things are squared away over here, Mr. Baggins. So without further ado to all of you over there, I am your host, James the Geologist. And I'm Brian Baggins. And this is Geology, geology on, on the, the Rocks. Rocks. Well, hey, man. Hey. She can cheers you. Ah, sweet. It's always weird. I edit that out because it's usually like us going like... <laughs> it's not a very uh, a That's pleasant. What the, <laughs> the outtake should just be us slurping. But have you noticed, like on this past one, I don't know if you've listened to it, but I just did a whole at the very end. It was you doing like this. There, I isolated you doing like <laughs> <Right>. one weird, <laughs> but it was really weird. <laughs> and so I so like at the end when I super cut everything together in between them, I have you going like. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Well, yes. we mentioned last week um, that we had a surprise. Yeah, you can say hello. Hey, hey, this is a. Uh, <laughs> Carly, what was I supposed to say? Uh, you were gonna call me that weird girl. Oh yeah, that, 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 oh yeah, that weird girl that walked into my office that one day. <laughs> but anyways, through um, emails and just talking back and forth, and her just I don't know, just burning curiosity. She's going to help out with writing some of the shows and take part in talking. Yeah, uh, and so as much as you want to, as little as yeah, question because yeah. you tell us a little bit about because you don't come from a geology background. I do not. You do no, not. Not at all. Great. <laughs> Great. Well, so I am a writing tutor. Okay, you're at the writing. college. Yeah, at TCC. At TCC. And essentially, her. over the winter break, I read this book called Bewilderment by Richard Powers. Shout out okay. to Richard. <laughs> Richard. Richard. If you're so listening. Richard. This is to you, baby. <laughs> <laughs> and it was like the most beautiful thing I've ever read. And it changed my life. And I had this moment, and I'll be honest with you, where I read about the earth and I was like, oh my God, these soil that we walk on is the crust <laughs> the crust the crust and so like i started learning all these things and like i walk around and people think i'm just high all the time <laughs> and like all Same. you know yeah. freezing outside and i'll make my dad come outside and be like look at the stars man look at them <laughs> and yeah it's people like I think said, i've gone insane no but no. i but it's yeah I, I do feel like once you have that kind of like that thing like click in your head it's just yeah, like you can't break it yeah it, no because it's just so it fascinating and like yeah. even last week when we did the Biff episode, Brian, like just learning new things yeah, continuously yeah. just being like, 
had my mind blown all the time. Just reading, even for these episodes, I'm just like, that's what that means. Like, yeah, yeah. <laughs> I'm like, what? And it's it's a it's a lifetime commitment. Yeah, after and you then get the once you're on the hook, you're. I don't know. Maybe yeah. some people lose the love. I don't know. I don't. I, think I, so. I, I don't. And then plus, there's this whole like uh, subsection of all of this that is just the jokes with all the words that yeah. you can say, like the puns. Yeah. Oh yeah. Like yeah. I was telling, I don't know what class I was telling. It's like, I can't not say like, if I, if something's taken for <laughs> taken for granted, I cannot not yeah. say granite. And people are just like, mm -hmm. I don't, okay, that doesn't, yeah, <laughs> it's not funny. They obviously didn't read granites and granites by oh. H. H. Reed. Oh. <laughs> I want to read that again. Yeah. I think what's also fun is the geology drawings. You're very good at those. I yeah. cannot draw. Mm -hmm. are, are you are for the? But you should be careful with what with your drawings. Why? I think you drew a penis in class the other day, <laughs> and Excellent. I just started laughing. Did so I draw hard. a penis in class? Oh, you totally did. And I was like, erase it, dude. Erase it. <laughs> you subconsciously drawing. Penises. Oh yeah. Okay. So it was you were talking about bathymetry. Bathymetry. Yeah. And you were showing, <laughs> you were showing the picture, but then you started drawing lines like this <laughs> and then for some all the lines were connected but for some reason you just went you just did one not connected oh my God. Yeah, but you had to you shade it in too oh okay and it was I you should have like, oh been like boy. yeah that's, that's see i'm there as an observer yeah to yeah. not disturb and i feel like that's what you bring to the uh the podcast too because i know not every single one of our listeners have a background in geology or doing geology so yeah just by all means at any point in time just ask us questions and and if we're, because a lot of the things we do take for granted. Yeah. Right. Of course. Quartz, of course we do. Yeah. That's yeah. the shoes. <laughs> Let me get over here. So, well, welcome. Cheers. Yeah. Cheers. <laughs> All right. Well, then I guess that will take us to a little bit of new news. And I feel like this one was kind of fitting. You sent this article to us, Carly, right? It was about the the icebergs, since we're going to be doing geomorphology and kind of changing landscapes and all of that fun stuff that we'll get into yeah. here in a little bit. But we will turn our attention to the megaberg, as it's called. So the it's, it was designated as a as A68A since it split off from Antarctica back in July 2017. And the new research highlights just how much fresh water it's released into the oceans during its late melting process. Satellite monitoring systems indicate that for three months at the end of its lifetime, up to March 2021, the iceberg released an astonishing 152 billion tons of fresh water around the remote island of South Georgia. That's the equivalent of 61 million <laughs> Olympic-sized swimming pools. So I would like to see Michael Phelps like, yeah, yeah do that one, right? right? Like, it's, oh, it's the Winter <laughs> Olympics, so it's kind of fitting. And yeah. then, we've told you the difference between a million and a billion, right, Carly? Yeah. Is that a billion has two L's and a million? Uh, 32, 32 years. Oh, no. Okay. She's out of second. my class. Yeah, yeah, no, no. There's an ongoing thing. So this one time I was telling them about the difference between a million and a billion. And, and I said, a billion has two L's. And we were just like, what? And then what? like uh, Greta, was, she was, was like, Greta, Greta, it was Greta. Yeah. She was like, I've been spelling it wrong my whole life. <laughs> million, one L. And you were just like, eh, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Yeah, okay. go on. But, okay. oh, but you know, South Georgia, that's where all those penguins live. Poor penguins. Yeah. Yeah. So they're worried about how this sudden injection of fresh water and the nutrients flowing off the iceberg that they can affect the marine habitats around the island in both terms of ocean circulation and then the biological food chain. Right, right. So I think that there was a total of five satellites that were employed to really keep tabs on the position. So it was tracking it. It was doing its spy thing, what those satellites do, right? But anyway, so the, the area, it also calculated things such as thickness and the volume changes of the iceberg. So as it peaked, the iceberg was melting at a rate of 
get this right. So it was about seven meters or 23 <sighs> feet per month. So that's quite oh a bit of God. fresh waters going into that stuff, yeah. stuff, stuff, ocean, <laughs> the Southern ocean. <laughs> <That however. thing. laughs> Huge blue. Yeah. So uh, drifting <laughs> icebergs can affect the patterns of the ocean, block routes used by wildlife and leave damaging plow marks on the sea floor. So it looks as though A68A broke up early enough to avoid scraping the seafloor, though the sheer amount of fresh water released could still be a problem. Because we've talked about that, right? Like the, the, the fresh water, what it will do is oh, that the density, yeah. right? It, so if the salinity, so all of its circulation and stuff, I don't know about the Southern Ocean necessarily, but with the circulation of the oceans, right? It's density stratified. Yeah. Like, right. What and if it creates some biffs? I don't know if it's going to do that. <laughs> <laughs> There's got to be an event down there, right? Right. But yeah, no, it can uh, affect. Yeah. If you yeah. dilute it, it's not going to have, it's not going to be stratified as much. So anyways. Yeah. And that they, all the microorganisms and everything, they depend on that stratification to feed the other macros, right? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, bro. Well, yeah. Well, okay. So <laughs> A68A <laughs> eventually traveled for three and a half years and covered a distance of 4,000 kilometers before melting away into basically nothing by April of last year. Some smaller children icebergs, child <laughs> icebergs broke off over time and they were designated as A68B. No. <laughs> A68C and there's more. So but, basically, yeah. <laughs> yeah, it was this huge piece of ice. Satellites tracked it and they don't know how, but we can see that even though I know we're going to be talking more about fluvial morphology and river stuff, but you can see the overall effects of how icebergs kind of. Yeah. Uh, anything transforming the shape of the earth as it is at the present. So it's morphin time. It's morphin time. <laughs> Hi, Ob. And Carly, if we ever just, just interrupt whenever you want to. Okay. okay. That, that's your goal tonight is just interrupt us whenever you feel like <laughs> try to make this like a four hour episode with this. Okay. With this. Run I'll just, Cause I, earlier I wanted to comment about fluvial. Yeah. Like what a what great word. It? Oh yeah, it, it is. is. Fluvial. That, alluvial like too. What's like the I, difference? I feel like fluvial is like the foil of the word moist. Uh, but that's uh, yeah. I like the, the word, word moist. Seepage. Do you? Moist seepage. No. I don't like the word meat. <laughs> Something about the really? word meat. Meat stick. It's what I call beef jerky. <laughs> is it? Today I asked my friend, I said, hey, can I have one of your meat sticks? <laughs> James, I heard you draw meat sticks in class. I do, apparently. <laughs> it's, it's, it's just a, it's something I do. Yeah, I get it. Okay, so geomorphology is the name of tonight's game, yeah. my friend. And much like everything we try and tackle could go a bajillion different ways, right? But quite simply, some working definitions or where we're going to go is geomorphology is basically just the study of landforms and how that landform has evolved throughout time. Right. And the topic traditionally has been studied both qualitatively, which is going to be the description of landforms. Right. Um, and then quantitatively, it's and that's going to be process-based. And that describes forces acting on Earth's surface that then produce landforms and landform changes. Ooh, so we can, can see- Can you give an example of that? Yes. So are you asking about the process or- <laughs> Like, can you describe quali qualitative- <laughs> Qualitatively? Yeah. yeah. So that would be like, we would be able to recognize what a terrace would be, a river terrace or an oxbow channel. And we'd be able to see qualitatively that, hey, these exist. But then when you get into the quantitatively, then you're talking about the mechanics and how, why, why did the scour occur there? How was it allowed to occur? What kind of head pressure and flow velocities and all that? And what types of sediment allow for that erosion to occur? Just keep talking to gotcha. me, Brian. Yeah. Keep talking to me. We see that there's this rift in quant and qual debate again. again. But yeah. I don't, I don't think there's really a rift, but which I've had a big shift in my appreciation, but I guess that's for another different time and 
discussion because my the paper I'm trying to write is a is a qualitative auto ethnography. Oh, Ooh. well, okay. The shift that's happened that's been towards more of a quantitative approach was largely based on the work of Horton, Strahler, and Leopold in the 40s and 50s, and they advocated for a physically based assessment of landforms. Right, and today, like we uh, typically see quantitative approaches widely utilized, demonstrated by modern process geomorphology textbooks. So, like every other branch of geology, there's going to be many subdisciplines within geomorphology <laughs> itself. Like, goes to be a big surprise, right, Brian? That yeah. include tectonic, fluvial, storm, aeolian, floodplain, glacial, groundwater, climate, tsunamis, and yeah. others. Blah blah blah. And the a- list goes on. Yeah, <laughs> aeolian's another awesome word. You brought up fluvial. Fluvial. Um, I yeah. can't not think of areolas when I see that word. Yeah, that's fair. <laughs> I get it. So. What's really making these different is how we approach the subdisciplines, um, which we see are mainly driven by distinctions in the mechanics, like I was talking about, and the dynamics involved in the processes. And not, and not to mention that it's not strictly aerial, as it includes both topographic. So when we say topographic, land surfaces, and then mm-hmm. bathymetric, which is underwater features, so below sea level, which you've gotten a heavy dose of, Carly. <laughs> and then streams, rivers, and lakes respond to local geology, physiography, and climate <laughs> in a very in a variety of ways, including morphological changes. To add some excitement, we (gasps) study this one of two ways on a geologic timescale. These processes include picking it up. Yeah. I like it. Sounds like we're about to die. (laughs) (laughs) Dude, no, but so recently over a little bit further down, closer to the base, one of those fighter jets crashed into someone's backyard. Yeah. No way. And then one of the pilots, they both ejected, but one in their parachute got tied up in a power line and got burned. Jeez. Yeah. Just right up the road. Yeah. That's awful. Gnarly. Yeah. (laughs) So every time I'm like downstairs and I hear like the jets going on, I'm like, get in. I do this. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, gosh. Yeah. Your Cold War pose. Yeah, that's it. (laughs) So to add some excitement, we study this one of two ways yeah. and that will be on a geologic time scale. <laughs> and such processes include the movement of tectonic plates, volcanic activity, and the movements of glaciers and ice sheets. Right. And then the other way being? On the shorter time scales of decadal or even, you know, annually, uh, geomorphological processes, they can include the erosion of soil on riverbanks, <laughs> lake shores caused by water or wind and changes in water level resulting in precipitation or snowpack melt, deposition of sediment carried by streams and rivers onshore and underwater vegetation growth, but also sudden geologic changes like landslides, debris flows, earthquakes, extreme weather, and then of course the impact of humans. Stupid humans. Yeah. We're the worst. As geomorphologists interpret multiple forms of information from a range of sources to create a logical and rational argument that is appropriately supported by evidence. So much of this, uh, I guess, is really going to depend on the experiences and training of the person or team, rather, who are making these interpretations that we're going to get to in a little bit. And basically, we are making sense of patterns, we're making sense of behavior, and we're going to be making sense of the evolution of those landforms that make up any particular landscape. Right. And it it helps answer why particular features are found at a particular locality. Yes. And what processes form them over a certain time frame, um, and then how the landforms interact with each other. Yeah. So really, this interpretation in geomorphology can be thought of as an indeterminate of really not having a definite end result as many interpretations might be valid, right? So there's not... 
much like these episodes, there's just like a bajillion ways we could go. But combinations of attributes, relationships, processes, drivers, legacy effects, and sequences of events can really create these contingent circumstances that are complex sequences of events in response to these things that are happening to them. <laughs> right. And <laughs> individual circumstances are not always readily generalizable. So it's good. <laughs> yeah, right. So I think of uh, like chronostratigraphy, if you will, versus lithostratigraphy, right? So was it deposited during a specific time and place? Or are we talking about the same formation in terms of what <laughs> makes it up, right? So you can have, yeah. you know, you know what I'm saying with this, right, Brian, is that if you have a marine transgression that takes 10 million years, yeah, right, that limestone that's going up, it's all that same formation, not formation, but the same uh, limestone bed, but there is 10 million years oh, yeah. difference yeah. in measuring it here <laughs> and there. So you might not even have the same fossils in it, even though it's the same. Right. And that's why you'll have the, the fossil marker beds that may keep that formation it's showing a continuous thing across, you know, hundreds of miles, right? Yeah. But around it, you may have, like you're saying, 10 million years, 15 million years. And each layer, because of it's, it wasn't originally that thick. Like it was thicker than that and it got compacted. Yeah. Things that were eroded. And so that's where I get like, I get confused when people are like, oh, it's conformable with, you know, these layers are conformable. I'm like, there's so much erosion <laughs> happened in between these two. Yeah. Like there was sediment removed. Yeah. So it's not truly conformable in my mind anyway. Yeah. Maybe. Okay. That was my rant of the day. What's conformable? It means it goes with. Well, if you had, if you didn't have an interruption in sedimentation on top of, of another layer. So it just, it's laying on top. There's not an erosional surface. There's no break yeah. in it. And there's a really cool thing that's found all over the world. It's called the Great Unconformity. Yes. And, <laughs> oh, you know about it. That's cool. I'm glad. Did you teach her that? No. Oh. She's like. Am I thinking of the wrong thing? Hey, you're probably not. Yeah, it's it's a very famous thing. Where, that's really cool. Uh, the guy with the rocks, Hutton. Yeah. Yeah. Good uh -huh. job. Yeah. But I always thought that was cool because that's like built. Like, the guy with the rocks. The, guy, the second most. I always say James so Hutton, well. right? The he's second the, most. He's famous. the second most famous James <laughs> in geology. Yeah. No, but I like that. I'm like, the first. Because that shows how much time can pass and what the processes were. I mean, there's, I think there was some article. Maybe we can do that next week and I'll shut up about this right now. Yeah. Just for the sake of time. Yeah. 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 Okay. Chronostratigraphies. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll come back to it. We will. We will. Down the road. Well, okay. In general terms, <laughs> uh, approaches to geology are going to lack any real reproducibility. <laughs> <laughs> Unlike that of experimental methods uh, afforded to practitioners of physics or chemistry, right? Or controlled conditions in applications in engineering or biology or in any lab-based science. But, you know, repeatable phenomena can be mapped out and analyzed in terms where a conclusion can be reached. Right. So you can also, there's this issue of you could ask 10 geologists to map any sort of complex <laughs> geologic structure out in the field. And what you get, I guarantee, will be 10 different interpretations yep. just because of their experiences. No, that's true. And I think that has a lot to do with what we're talking about. Perhaps, you know, we can think of geomorphology as an open system. No, but, but I like that. So it's simple, but mysterious, kind of like, uh, um, if no one knew what you looked like, Brian, and they just were going off your, uh, your voice. Yeah. But I, I guess it, you have a more complex voice. Thank you. It's I mysterious. you called it round earlier. And creamy. <laughs> <laughs> that or dreamy, whatever. It's, okay. you know, it's creamy dreams. 
<laughs> so in other words, it's not this operating in a closed system that would make the predictability a little easier. So just the simple fact that the Earth is billions of years old and dynamic and cause and effect reasoning can play out just a wee bit differently <laughs> than if you're measuring, I don't know what, say three generations of bacteria in a controlled yeah. environment on an auger. No. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. I agree. And and that's why geology is awesome. Yep. You know, we're, we're bigger. We are. Yeah. Okay. Before we get into a specific area of geomorphology, let's take a moment to maybe explain some of the processes. And some of the logic. Okay, Brian. Yeah. Brian. Brian. Okay. Okay, yeah. Brian. Yeah. Brian. Okay. Mm -hmm. So interpreted anything, <laughs> I think it would be helpful to kind of break it down um, a little bit like this. So how it works is you make observations and this becomes the data, if you will, right? So just our observations are just going to become these data points and data being the raw units of information. And this can be quant, which is discrete or continuous, or it can be qualitative in nature, which are nominal and categorical. And it's just information that doesn't have any meaning assigned to it yet, right? So it is what it is. There's nothing yeah. uh, swaying it one way or the other. Then, you know, what you do with that data or information once it's gathered, that's where the in interpretation comes from. Um, and it's contingent on many factors, but, you know, it requires questions to answer or a hypothesis to test. Or hypotheses to yeah. test. Yeah. So yeah. that's that's a good point, right? So it's asking the right questions is critical to really understanding and interpreting all of the datas. Yeah. And so processes to properly interpret observations would include the analysis, explanation, the argument, clarification, iterations and validations, or you can think of this as the evidence and perhaps make some sort of generalization from the data. All right. So then if we break that down and look a little deeper, so you mentioned validation, right? So this is yeah. what I need all the time. I just need to be validated. <laughs> but this is going to entail proof wherein sufficient evidence is really going to be derived through tests, experiments, and or examination to establish a, a fact or produce belief in something, right? So yeah, and that kind of we as scientists we we put different weights on different pieces of evidence Ooh, that's subjective it is but it makes sense so yeah. you know if it depends on the confidence of your data so you don't get one number in your analyses that you run right you get like a confidence interval at 95 percent well and that's then, that's what you, but that's what the hypothesis test is doing so you make a hypothesis and you have to make it falsifiable all right so the null yeah. hypothesis and then you test those two and that's where you get that confidence and doing your t-test or yeah um your whole but you uh, run so whole, so many yeah like and you can and yeah. there are lots of different so but if you're if you if you're not asking the right questions then you're going to ultimately set up your experiment wrong yeah and even your hypothesis testing and all of that to get any kind of confidence intervals yeah yeah i would i would just say though that like what the information is would automatically have a different confidence in it so like are you looking at factual data from analysis from a machine yeah Right. Or are you taking rhetoric from farmers or a historian? Yeah, right. What, and know. then, but then I also think to, too, like uh, the problem with the BIFs, whenever you, they just had this limited data, so they have to extrapolate and then interpolate, like, you know, they're they're applying this small subsect of data and they're making it generalizable, right? Yeah. Well, so generalization would, it basically involves the determination of patterns, relations among variable aspects of the objects and the ability to apply and test concepts where 
kind of just talking about. And classifying the criteria across a range of contexts in environments. Right. And we see the, some of the issues with the, with the BIF from last week. But yeah. because remember that the processes of interpretations in geomorphology, they're going to be circumstantial and contextual as it strives to make the best possible use of the best available information and insight into multiple lines of evidence, like you just said, and approach to inquiry and reasoning. And by incorporating multiple techniques, it can provide the additional lines of evidence necessary to support a particular interpretation. On the flip side, uh, undue adherence and advocacy of any one single model with the prescriptive set of procedures may present a significant barrier in any efforts to improve that interpretation. Yeah, right. So kind of what we were talking about before the show, Carly, like whenever we do the radiometric dating is we use multiple kind of tests to strengthen and corroborate. It's not just like, oh, no, it's this because, right, it's if you were to like, I only carbon date things. The, the inherent flaw is that if you stick to that, if you're very narrow and you're thinking that I'm only going to carbon date rocks, like the just the big flaw with that is, is that you can't carbon date rock. Well, I guess you could, but it's not going to get they don't have any salt. organics. In yeah. It. Right. And it's testing that um, nitrogen 14 and carbon 14. But anyways, yeah. So competencies and processes support that transformation of data divorced from meaning into knowledge with meaning. Right. So experience really helps as it as it pays to appreciate and understand the significance of what is being observed. Sometimes really like bright sparks and fireworks events marks step changes in understanding that reconceptualize our own understandings and approach to inquiry. I'm sure Brian, like in the field from others and just from doing right, because I always joke that you're the geologist and like I went in academia, right? So you have probably throughout your your career have had a lot of like aha moments that may have uh, first felt like a beating your head against like some sort of wall, right? Like, like, what is this? What is this? Yeah. And, I know, and then just being like, what the F is going on and then just something like oh yeah yeah I think it has to do more with it's not so much the process <laughs> yeah it has to do with that a lot of that brain farting yeah it, it does because you when you're in the field you're like hey I have all these tools I have my methods and you know we're we're talking about how do we interpret data that we've gathered, right? So am I gathering the right data? And so that alone is beating your head against the wall, like, oh, am I going to miss something? Why didn't I think of this at the last site kind of thing? But shadowing more experienced geologists, they do it slowly. And that that was my big aha moment. Was, so you're not like just, yeah. just pounding it, just like trying to, ah! no. Like they'll as sit quick down as possible. and they'll just, they'll look and they'll like sketch something out and then they'll go and look at it from another view, from above, from another, like geology is not 2D and it's it's 3D, 4D, right? So you have to be able to think that way. Yeah. And so your processes of interpretation need to be the same. That, that makes sense. Yeah. Thank you for that, Brian. Yeah. Then how all of that is interpreted is going to be based on a few things such as situational context or the environment concepts that bound our current understanding like models and theories and so forth. And then there are your assumptions and those might include your, your experience, your memory, intuition, and then you just have your own like common sense. And here I would argue that cognition is arguably probably the, the most important competency yeah. in the process of interpretation itself. So these include perceptions, which is the ability to capture process and actively interpret sensory information. So it really in geomorphology, I would assume because I'm not, I'm, I ain't no geomorphologist. Like this <laughs> is going to include the sense of sight that allows our practitioner <clears throat> to observe, identify, visualize, and picture the landscape. So right, you kind of yeah. have to just kind of can't be blind yeah but you have to, well, well that but you have to 
first see the landform and yeah. then think about the landform. Yeah. You have to be the landform. Be one. Yeah. 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 Okay. Well, so then like attention as part of cognition includes focused attention defined as the brain's ability to concentrate on a target stimulus for any period of time. Yeah. That that seems like it's <laughs> lacking with younger generations. Yeah. And well, no, that's, gratification. that's a big thing. Yeah. So, that's because of video games. No, it's not. Yes, it is. No, it's not. Yes, it Violent is. Violent video games. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's, it's that's it's a, just like boom, boom, boom. No, like instant I would, gratification. It's all of the, the likes. It's, it's like Sesame dopamine streets. The likes. In the in the posts. Well, that's like an email. That's a different generation. No, that's I what know. I was talking about. Like the, the no, I know, but up. there's another one. I play video all. games and I can solve complex well, you're issues. A unicorn, but Charlie. Um, <laughs> oh yeah, I forgot about that. <laughs> I don't know where we were. Ability to focus on the activity, Brian. Oh yeah, see, I can't even focus. I have poor <laughs> cognition and attention. Um, but yeah, so like you have to be able to focus on what you're doing. Um, you can't just be like, "Hey, I'm bored. I'm gonna go jump in that nice spring instead of doing my field work." Or step on someone's massive 350 million year old fossil. Yeah, like happened to me at field camp. Or screw up your data recording, or mess up your sample. Mm-hmm. You know, there's lots of stuff. So you gotta you gotta be on your feet and paying attention. Yeah. So this is also going to really encompass logic, which is the analysis and appraisal of arguments that lead to the acceptance of one's proposition, um, the conclusion, if you will, on the basis of a set of other propositions or premises. So logic here is going to help decipher the most likely solution to a problem. So that's what I tried to, whenever we do kind of uh, relative dating, I was like, there's multiple interpretations, but some are going to be more right than others, right? Yeah. If you, if I, but I always tell them, if you can think through it and you can say, this is why I think these steps go here and it makes <laughs> sense. I don't ever say like, no. it's completely wrong. That's a huge thing. Anytime I offer an interpretation, my mentor dude is like, make your case. If you can't, then it's not defendable. Yeah. If it, if you, if you can put together something, it might still be wrong, <laughs> you know, or incorrect, but it's at least you. It's less wrong. Right. And so sometimes we're just trying to get things through the goalposts. Yeah. We're not trying to like nail, a, you know, a dart. And, Cause I, and nothing is going to be ever. And I think too, getting over the fact that it's, you're probably not ever going to know 100% because you're no. not going back to that time anyways. Yeah. You should never say. This is the only way yeah. this could have happened. No. But anyways, yeah. I feel like that surprises me about science. Like really? the things with the turtle. Oh, with the magnetism? I the, thought I thought there's like only one explanation. No, there's, then, it's, yeah. Yeah. There's just the best me. explanation. Yeah. Well, I mean, there's, and it's not even the best. I think the the best will, like, I think overall it outcompetes everything. So then people forget about all the other possibilities. Yeah. Yeah. Right, because it better explains it, but there are multiple ways. It's the generally accepted explanation. Yeah, there that's you go. probably the right way. Because it's because we will never know. I mean, I get like the other day in class where you were like, "Oh, uh, if I drop this thing, is it going to fall every single time?" Like you and don't the know. Answer like, is no, but the answer is yes. yes. Like I was telling him about like gravity. Right, that's going to fall almost every single time. But can I say that this this pencil is going to fall every time, always? Yes. Why wouldn't? It? Because someone could no. Because eventually. It it might not, something might happen. And right, like someone might catch it, so it won't fall. No, no, well, no, <laughs> or, no, or, or due to gravity, fall due to oh, gravity. okay. I'm saying, but we will never be around long enough to say for certain that that will always be the case. I don't know. I feel like we, that's just, it's true, but getting in the weeds. So maybe <laughs> that, maybe our answer is there's a very likely explanation for this, but. What I'm saying is like, that's a silly premise. I mean, like even to ask that question, like, is, so you would start testing, will it not, not fall? <laughs> 
and then it's probably yeah then yeah. the numbers get switched and you get more confidence in it because but just to make an outright claim that i don't it's it's because that's unfalsifiable because no one will be around right True. so yeah anyways yeah so you were saying something about cognition brian right and yeah, intelligence. yeah yeah so it includes intelligence and it's defined broadly as men mental capability that you know involves the ability to reason plan solve problems abstract thinking um and then you know you learn quickly and learn from experience yeah and i think and i i feel like astrophysicists are kind of like that but i do feel like <laughs> geology is mind-bending in that we have to think of not only time scales but earth is huge and then just all of these processes happening at the same you know what i'm saying like yeah. there is just a lot going on and it deals with biology it deals with math and physics and chemistry and biology yeah all of them i love that you said that because someone asked me the other day why are you interested in geology it's the most boring oh science in the world and i was like no 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 <laughs> sit here for hours and let me tell you how geology is the yeah. culmination of all the sciences it, 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 and it is it gets a bad rap because i do because people it just does. like it's 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 jocks for rocks yeah there's like, oh, you just like jocks. rocks you just like rocks it's that's why it's, it's the ultimate reduction and i'm just like yeah okay well then mm. i guess it's go just, on thinking that and all it's my just happy rocks. life yeah well, when i when i took my science courses geology was seen as like the easy course i know like and, yeah. if you don't want to take a science course this is what you do just bide your time and those are usually the students that i get and they always <laughs> put on uh, rate my professor he's boring and i hate him and yeah <laughs> so i, I do remember it. that too though like, i don't know how anyone could call you boring though well that's they do they're like he like, doesn't teach us anything he doesn't know what he's doing you get your submarine drawings wow there's yeah. lots they don't, they don't but like they, a lot of people don't appreciate the subtleties that's yeah. lame no that was that was the thing it was i took geology because it was going to be the easy one and then i never went back you never just, left yeah. yeah and i i just took geology because i didn't want to i was going to be a chemistry major yeah and uh i had to prereq and i was like already like almost 30 so i was like nope yeah and then i fell in love with it i took a uh, historical and intro and the physical at the same time and i was just like <laughs> i had a geomorphogasm yeah is that what that was yeah that's what it was i was just like <laughs> overwhelmed so finally cognition it includes the ability to reason yeah and that can be hard <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I think that's 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 the hard part is like, you know what I'm saying? So like as you become more educated, the I think you you find out and I'm not sure that we've mentioned on the podcast, but like the more you know, the more you understand that you really don't know. So it's like you have like so much more breadth and depth to your knowledge base. But then yeah. you just become so you realize that you really don't know. So like if you don't know much in your worldview is like this, then you know everything yeah. to you. So then I think that really limits people in their reasoning because it's like, well, uh, Donald Trump, like, <laughs> no, you're I right. It's the quote. Uh, I don't know if you like Donald Trump. No, <laughs> safe, zone, safe zone. No, I was, it's a, uh, I was, okay. So one of the things that I had the epiphany was that I learned about the Hadean, Hadean. Yeah. Yeah. The Hadean. And how the, the like, you know, the moon, no, not the moon, but some kind of thing crashed into the earth and then created the moon, like, well, all the little rocks and then, and then La Luna. Yeah, La it Luna. brought it, it brought it together. And so I was trying to tell someone about that and they were just like i don't believe that i don't believe that they what? couldn't even they couldn't even take it in and i, I just thought well, it broke my heart honestly what was their other explanation <laughs> god jesus. oh yeah. yeah jesus jesus dude so that okay so my, i don't know where my kid picked it up my six-year-old he's just always like jesus like just he's playing games he's like 
Jesus. <laughs> but it, the way he says it, because he says it like a six year old. And yeah. It's cute. But I'm just like, shut up. Jesus. <laughs> Jesus. No, that, that. So they just they they left in there like I can't. That's where they just drew the line with their their reasoning. They're just like, well, how can you prove that? You can't. But it makes total sense, right? You can provide a lot of evidence <laughs> that suggests that. <laughs> that is that's, true. That's far more believable. than. But you have people out there that think that the earth are flat or like even like the they may not even believe that the earth is flat but they think that the the lunar landing was fake i don't get that like, right oh Why? i don't know they believe that and they're gonna have a really hard time believing this may be yeah. like a side question okay but i also feel like it goes with geomorphology okay so one thing that i find interesting or i'm curious about is that okay so with the hadian eon it was so hot right mm -hmm. you didn't have a crust well it was constantly probably being recycled yeah because right. the heat was so much in the convection. right and but crust and plate tectonics have a lot to do with like how they how volcanoes and mountains are formed mm -hmm. yeah so but the Hadean eon still had volcanoes i don't know if they would be like the same well yeah, yeah i'm sure, would, I'm sure you, it's, magma or, yeah well i'm sure it was so hot but like i like anything so we saw what happened you saw the video with the the pillow basalts at the bottom of the mm -hmm. so i'm sure there was like a thin crust that had some but sort not of, like a continental crust not like, like this huge have, vast no. expanse i wouldn't think but it was just mm. and even if it was like see that at this time too you're having that fractionation of the like at the early 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 earth like all of it was kind of like this homogenous formed right and then you started getting this settling what they call it chemical differentiation or is that what they call it whenever yeah and it, all the lighter elements came to the surface and then yeah the differentiation but then the, ma the mantle yeah, yeah and then you know also at the time you had probably bombardments all the time mm -hmm. from yeah. these mm -hmm. meteorites yeah. asteroids whatever you call them i always get confused asteroids and meteorites i think we're i think i kind of just checked but i think <laughs> that it's that's true we didn't have like a, a thick continental crust not in the sense we, that we think of it no but we had enough of an almost an oceanic crust that you would you would allow volcanoes to form and then they still you know would get remelted and then you'll have crystal fractionation and all that stuff and densities and yeah it just all starts yeah I don't know. But they did have Hadean zircons that suggested that plate tectonics started. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, yeah. But so like the further we go back, the less infrared, because we don't have any rocks that are really that old. Like xenocrysts, right? But like the, that's, and those are just little zircons. Yeah, like, but they're but they're not even as old as Earth is, though, because it's all been recycled. Yeah, I know. And then you can't make much sense of that because you can't, what do you, you don't have anything to, like these data points. Yeah, that's a big interpretation, which maybe is not close. We don't know. I, I think it's know. decent. But yeah, so dude, so reasoning. Deductive reasoning, right? So it's yeah. going to start with the assertion of a general rule and proceeds to guaranteed specific conclusions or applications, whereas inductive reasoning, right? It's going to begin with observations that are specific and limited in scope and proceeds to uh, a generalized conclusion that is likely but not certain in light of accumulated evidence. And that involves gathering evidence, seeking patterns, forming multiple working hypotheses or theories, basically to explain what's, what's going on. Right. So then there is a lesser known <laughs> reasoning agent and that is abductive reasoning. Have you heard of that one? Abductive. Yes. And then it derives uh, the likeliest possible explanation for an inherently incomplete set of observations, making the best of the information that we have at hand. So often this is really going to entail making an educated guess after observing a phenomenon for which there is no real clear explanation. Yes. And in this form of logical inference, the premise does not guarantee any preconceived conclusion. Several lines of reasoning may explain a particular phenomenon or 
or or even a pattern. Abduction is open to subjectivity with a high risk of confirmation bias. Right. And really, as I become more engrossed with qualitative work, it's all about that subjectivity, which isn't this bad thing that I tend to think of with my science brain, because, you know, you're like, oh, we need to be objective. But <laughs> basically, when you say that the subjectivity is just saying that there are multiple truths and by multiple truths, since you experience something and I experience something, right, it could be the same thing. We each have our own understanding of what happened. But, you know, I digress. That's more of my uh, my philosophical yeah. underpinning. I'm glad that you, you pulled that in here, though. Yeah. Because I get to learn about it. Yeah. So you make it interesting. Normally, I'm like, uh. <laughs> <laughs> no, but yeah, from what, from all that, you know, we get our, our knowledges. Boom. Yeah. And the knowledge can be described as an understanding based on extensive experience, interpreting data and dealing with information on a certain subject or question. Right, right. So basically knowledge is data with meaning. Precisely. Huh, okay. Mm, so, yeah. okay. So how might we apply uh, what we just talked about? Because if you collect data and apply it wrong and it can and will produce knowledging or knowing things wrong knowledging <laughs> right so uh, bad knowledges you yeah. you get what i'm trying to say mm, maybe do I, I don't know do you okay okay <laughs> okay go on okay so i say before we go any further brian that we do a little bit of beach cleanup sponsorship and to keep everyone honest since we have enabled <laughs> sponsorships yeah. we've gone up we are at 78 dollars and wow 22 cents that is that's so good right it still looks like our, our podcast is growing yeah which is cool but so you're welcome yeah <laughs> yeah thanks. we gained one new super fan who's yes. like just listen press play because they're gonna get to go do some science at yeah. a beach Sweet. Yeah. Then that's going to take us to a little bit of... <laughs> uh. <laughs> mineral minutes. I love mineral. minerals. Mineral. Mineral minutes. That part. Minerals. That's, that's the part that it was like, mm, <laughs> minerals. Oh yes. Okay, so this week's Mineral Minute is brought to you by the hydrated sodium urinal sulfate hydroxide, natrozipiite. Natrozipiite's chemical formula is Na4UO2-6 sulfate 3-OH10 <laughs> and 16 water ions. Natrozipiite is a yellow translucent to transparent mineral with an earthy dull luster. Natrozipiite locality is mine mines <laughs> on the Colorado. <laughs> Plateau, including the Happy Jack Mine, <laughs> and is named for its composition and for Franz Xaver Maximilian Zippy. Fun fact: Franz Xaver Maximilian Zippy is Australian mineralogist. All right. So, Kevin, uh, natural zippyite has a ooh a hardness oh, oh mm. of five to five point five. And a specific gravity of 4.5 calculated. Natrozipiite's habit forms crust-like aggregates on a matrix. Natrozipiite is <laughs> biaxial with a with a 2V angle of 80 degrees, both measure and calculated. So, yeah, so that it's biaxial negative. negative. Bi okay, weird, I didn't know if I should read that. Weird At first I thought it said bisexual and I was like, that's... Maybe it is. Yeah, Could it's be. probably... Cool that. It's a happy jack. Yeah. Natrozipiite <laughs> is said to have a... <laughs> oh no! <laughs> the perfect rack with parallel <laughs> to flattening of grades to that, like the micas. So natrozipiite is monoclinic in the 2M prismatic class. <laughs> Stay tuned for next week's mineral rabbitite. Mineral rabbitite. Rabbitite. Wow. 
nice. Mineral minutes. Mineral. All right. Really so that should be a perfect rack. I've got, I've got a story for y'all. Okay. About how I totally embarrassed myself today in front of, in front of students. Um, I had to give a presentation to cadets. Those are police oh, yeah. students. Oh, yeah. yeah. And it was a, it was a study skills presentation. And so it is incredible what they have to know. They have to almost like know word for word penal codes, oh my um, gosh. which I like to call P codes. And so there's just so much information. So today they were like, they failed their second test. They were were desperate they were like anything you can do to help us so i said try to make your studying as filled with humor as you can because that's gonna press it into your brain yeah. and so they were like Ooh, what do you mean so i was like i was reading about mount st helens yeah. and i learned like about the magma pressing through or whatever and they called it the bulge <laughs> yeah so, yeah yeah so i am telling them this and i'm like yeah so i just like <laughs> i I thought about the bulge and I made fun of the bulge in my mind. And they're just like, you know, I'm supposed to be professional, but here I am like a woman talking to yeah. them about bulges. Well, they're they, cadets. Yeah. Yeah. You have to have some kind of sense of humor. So there's nothing against like any of the other geology podcasts, but they are, some of them are awfully just dry. Yeah. And there's, there's not really any kind of like. Geologists grrr, just want to have fun. Crass. <laughs> That should be our new theme song. Yeah. Do y'all just want to have fun? Um, <laughs> yeah. Oh, well, geez. glad that you got to talk about bulges with a bunch of most cops. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. Just that swelling of the magma. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Mm. Uh, and if you just say anything kind of like, oh, bulge. <laughs> I definitely didn't do that. It's going to blow the whole north face off. Uh. <laughs> Applications of geomorphology <laughs> to inform hydrologic paleo floods by Brian. Yeah. Baggins. By the way, I have a poem for you. You have to say it. Poems by Carly. I was going to make you read it. Oh, okay. I can read it. You want him to read it? You want poems by Brian or poems by I'll James? Read, I'll read anything. He will read anything. This is a good one. <laughs> I'm not setting you up for failure. Poems by Brian. Ozzy Mandias by Percy Bish. <laughs> Bishy. <laughs> Billy. <laughs> I met a traveler from an antique land who said two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert near them on the sand half sunk a shattered visage lies whose frown and wrinkled lip and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read which yet survive stamped on these lifeless things the hand that mocked them in the heart that fed and on the pedestal these words appear my name is Osmandius king of kings look at my works you mighty and despair. Nothing beside remains round the decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretched far away. Wow. <laughs> See? Yeah. Added value already. Yeah. Uh, uh, yeah. That's a geomorphology it is. poem. Oh. Like sands are just going to. Yeah. And stretch. Destroy and human work. Yeah, it does. Yeah. Yeah, do you want me to I autograph will. that for you? <laughs> yes, I do. It's going to go in nicely with next week's desserts and wines episode. Oh, it is. It's going to pair quite nicely with. The Ooh. Okay. Well, I hope you all liked that because it made me feel warm inside. <laughs> it did. The geomorphology it's not, it's not the whiskey. Not the whiskey. Not that yet. So for the back half of the episode, we thought we'd change the approach a little bit. And instead of just putting out definitions and general knowledge about geomorphology, 
we could, you know, walk everyone through how geologists or geomorphologists use knowledge in an applicable sense. So the example before weren't <laughs> practical applications? Well, they were, but it was mainly how we like, how we would think about the problem. So this would be more how, you know, I would use okay, geomorphology. So that, it, it comes out. It comes it's out. Just, it's, you're, thinking, you're going to... I want the spotlight. The so Brian Braggins. You, but I feel like it's <laughs> magnified just oh yeah on yeah. my my lack thereof so anyways yeah so so people actually get paid to investigate the geomorphology of river valleys and to use the data obtained to make these decisions <clears throat> brian braggins <clears throat> yeah so one of these types of investigations is called paleo flood anal yss <laughs> <laughs> okay, so we do literary analysis all the time, and we have to write it so much that we just end up saying lit anal. Yeah. yeah. Like, hey, that's some lit anal. You analyze it. Lit I don't know. anal. I'll remember that one. Okay. <laughs> so this is what? Paleo anal? Yeah. Wow. They must have been, I mean. One of these types of investigations <laughs> is called paleo anal. <laughs> Or, uh, or as the kids call it, yeah. paleo flood analysis. Painful anal. Yeah. Look for the hieroglyphics. <laughs> that. Okay. Well, so yeah, that's mainly what, what I did do. Did you say painal Olympics? No, I said hieroglyphics. Oh. <laughs> well, you hear what you want to hear, <laughs> yeah, Brian. Yeah, I guess so. Okay. Paleo anal. That's what I get paid to do. <laughs> So yeah, I'm working on five different ones in Colorado, Texas, Oklahoma, Arkansas, and Missouri. Thank mm. you, taxpayers. So for, yeah, I just want to say, keep rubbing in, Brian, that you're a real geologist <laughs> that gets to do real geologist things. Anyways, paleo floods, what we're talking about here are ancient floods and, or I guess a better way might be to state that we can think of it as prehistoric floods. Yeah. And so I'm sure, you know, people wonder why we care how our rivers behaved in prehistoric times, especially since, you know, channels have not stayed in the position they have for all time. They've migrated, climates have changed and all right. that. Right, and then really not to mention that the hundreds or thousands of dams and levees that have been built for whatever various reasons, like flood control, water supply. Yeah, uh, you yeah. Know. I have a question and, about that. Oh, yeah. I'm just curious what y'all think. So like for me, when I read about those things, it's like, okay, humans are interfering with the natural work oh, absolutely. of the earth. Yeah. And so I just wonder what would it be like if earth was left to its own devices? People would die. <laughs> yeah. People congregate in like, like Dallas, Fort Worth would yeah. have been wiped away. Okay. Now. I'm not trying to be mean against people, but, but like, no, I mean, like, I feel like people so have what? a hard, since we're like, I feel like very vain and like, we feel oh, yeah. like we are, we can control these things mm -hmm. too. So it leads to things like New Orleans being yeah. flooded because the levees break and then, yeah. And then what's that doing to the Mississippi river too? Isn't that, isn't the Delta actually, it's not even prograding anymore. It's like, uh, no, it's like, yeah. It's like it being, isn't and it's moving the, ecosystems it, with it. And yeah, it's yeah. I mean, so there's pros and cons. I mean, you you can say that if without dams, you know, we would have a more Damn. natural landscape and the ecosystems would just do their own thing, which they would half of them would get wiped out anyway in big floods like that. That happens. Right. But then you have humanity that we, we are part of the world and it's it's hard to define what's too much, I think. So I will say that it does change the when you dam up a river like it changes when it will start down cutting right if you yeah. if you channel it up then it'll start down cutting up here it changes that like, it does base level so, and then you can get all that sediment that comes and then what happens like you have to account for that right all that sediment well, that yeah, accumulates and what like happens? on even on yeah they do that but even on paleo flood studies so we have to get all this stuff together and the hydrologists and hydraulic engineers will put together channel models and we have to do pre and post dam because after the dam's built you'll have 
releases that are more concentrated and those will cause more downcutting, not for the whole reach of, you know, it may be within, you know, a few miles of the dam, but you do, uh, you do cause downcutting there. So it's, it changes the geomorphology of the river just by anthropomorphic. But even downstream too, because if you start, if you don't have that sediment being supplied to where it's usually being deposited, then it's like you starve that beach of sediments and then you do. There's also just like we were talking earlier, nothing is isolated so we can't assume you still will have sediment inflow from tributaries and and all that so it you, you do cause problems on coastal regions but then like a big part of dams that is water supply like we like if we didn't have dams so then that's that's my inherent like uh when i was going to say earlier right so now you are uh right hoarding the resources so you can legitimately fuck people downstream being like nope this is now my water motherfucker you do. yeah and that there's a lot of battles over that and yeah. it's and it's because there's so many people that's what it is it's so we're at a point where we need them to even have enough water because we otherwise we'd we'd completely drain the groundwater supplies which new mexico has had that problem in california California as well. So you you have a lot of issues that there's not a really great answer because you either use it all for human use and you exclude the environment or you go all environment and then a bunch of humans get screwed over. So there's not a good answer at the moment. Yeah, because what is happening to the salmon up in yeah. with all the dams. Yeah. And it's not, and that just dominoes into yeah. so, so many things. But anyway, yeah. so what are some reasons that we should study this in Brian since we okay. have Okay. Yeah. So these are I think these are just like feelings too. Uh, they are and like I'm definitely like I don't know the right answer because I was always against dams and I now I work with them. And so it's it's a weird thing. So mm. <laughs> but yeah, so that's you know, dams are a big reason that we have paleo flood studies and that would be dams and we they're built to a certain design height based on hydrologic modeling in mind so they they're going to estimate how high the dam should be built and based on how high it'll get loaded by whatever floods you know in loading of the reservoir a, a certain elevation that the dam will be loaded and how often i guess what you're maybe what you're referring to is like the 100 year flood or maybe even a 500 year flood kind of thing yeah yeah and so let's scale it back for a second if so if you're walking along a river you okay. found a local right yeah he may say something that would go something like my old man said that his old man <laughs> said that his old man said and then you just know, to uh just to be you know me so how patriarchal of you mr baggins i know i'm sorry so, i'm sorry everything's so male dominated yeah but that's the way that's the way those farmers are but they would say you know the river hasn't flooded my land here over the bank on this side of the river so the barn that i just built up there on top of that hill it's fine it ain't ever going to be flooded Right. Yeah. But like then your scientist brain. Right. So as a scientist, we would know that a lack of flooding in a relatively recent time doesn't really demonstrate the absence of a true flood hazard. Right. So we would need some way to extend (laughs) the record by hundreds, maybe, dare I say thousands of years? Yeah, and so we'll need real data that we can plug into a model, and that data would include the timing and magnitude of past floods, and you know, you want it over a span of time that probably goes back to the beginning of the Holocene. Just, if you don't mind, can we circle back real quick? When you said the 500-year flood, so if I'm a farmer, okay, so okay, I'm a farmer who didn't know (laughs) what that means. I would simply think then that floods are are predictable, that that maybe a flood, like a 100-year flood, would only happen only like once every hundred years, but... 
That isn't correct. Yes, James, the pig farmer. <laughs> you speak the truth. No, so usually this nomenclature of floods is based on models that will calculate a specific magnitude of flooding and then its recurrence period. All right, so it's like a, it's a ratio, right? Or it's a percentage. Mm, yeah. So it just has like a 1% chance that this will flood in any given year. Right. Another way to Kinda look like at it. like the weather. Yeah. Right? Yeah. yeah. So what you were talking about is that good old AEP, right? <laughs> so, or the annual exceedance probability. Exactly. Exactly. So the common misconception with like, you know, the 500 year flood or whatever is that once a particular flood happens, the clock is reset. And that's that's really false. Current practice treats each significant event independent of any preceding event. Yeah, yeah. So that that means that floods this year doesn't mean that an equally significant flood won't happen next year. Right. So right. it's again that you could even have a hundred year flood twice in one year. Yeah. And it sounds confusing because it is. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, but so I want to emphasize something we touched on. There's a model that's used to calculate loading of riverbanks or, you know, in my work, dams. So the Damn. hydrologists, yeah, the hydrologists have a great handle on it. Their models are good. But, you know, how do we really know what happened a few hundred to a few thousand years ago? You know, what type of evidence would you look for, James, if you needed to put real data in a model to make it not only more reputable, but more informing of dam risk? I would say that the the really the river valleys would would have clues, right? So we would look to our surroundings of past floods, right? So maybe old deposits that are preserved in the, the the rock record. Yeah, yeah. And so depending on where and what the old alluvial deposit is, it would determine how we use that deposit in the analysis. And more importantly, the geomorphic surface of that underlying deposit. That's a big thing that, that I had to wrap my head around was you have a terrace or like a, a geomorphic landform. The deposit underlying it belongs to it, but they're not, they're not, you cannot call them the same thing. It's very weird. And so even though they're, they're the same rock, they are. And thankfully we're not, we're usually never talking about rocks. Yeah. So it, it makes it a little easier. But, but, but what yeah. about your paleo anal? Yeah. Yeah. And so in, in my anal, we have <laughs> <laughs> Brian's doo-doo maker. <laughs> that old thing. So we have two major, <laughs> two Major geomorphic components that we're after, and that'll be PSIs. Okay. And NEBs. And for clarification, a PSI is not the practical. Oh, no, it's the what the pressure Pounds per square. Inch. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> I always think of PSUs or practical salinity units, but PSI oh, yeah, yeah. here in the paleo stage indicator, right? So mm -hmm. PSI, which would just be any evidence of high flood stages and the the NEBs that you spoke of being non exceedance bounds basically are just these things that would provide evidence that floodwaters have not inundated that particular feature for a certain amount of time, if you will. Right, and so you mentioned old flood deposits. These types of deposits could be a PSI or an NEB or really both. Doesn't old flood deposits sound like a, like a, a red dirt band? It like, does. Or like a, there should be. The a, Soggy Bottom Boys. Oh, yeah. <laughs> the old flood deposits. I'm going to go see them. <laughs> yeah, so neither one, right, are really going to be this these things that are mutually exclusive. But, you know. There's always a butt with you. <laughs> well, so deposits aren't oh, the wait, only... Oh, your butt. <sighs> 
That's my like <laughs> signature. Sound. Yeah. Okay. Uh, deposits aren't the only type of PSI. Uh, we can be more creative and pay more attention and have cognitive thinking. Oh yeah. That we can have more detective tricks under our little geologic Sherlock hat. Man, I should have gotten my dad to play Sherlock for this I episode. We maybe still, I was thinking about maybe getting him on to talk about like mm-hmm. some of the how Sherlock Holmes would go to solve clues and how we could probably could do extrapolate that, that into yeah maybe for the forensic one. Dude. Dude, my dad. Boom. So, boom. all right. We should have got your dad to play Sherlock. I agree. Yeah, we'll do um, that. Yeah. Okay. So, you know, we can have normal channel and overbank deposits associated with flooding, slack water deposits in caves. Those are super cool. The blowing I finally cave. saw one. And you back, saw a cave blowing? I did. I finally. blew. I blew. I, what? Whoa. Whoa. Is that yeah. a Freudian? <laughs> Freudian slip? Maybe. Erosional scars on bedrock, you know. Yeah. Well, you just call me a cave, Brian. So, wait, wait, wait. Okay. <laughs> What about high water marks and scours on old trees <laughs> and inclined trees for evidence yeah, of, the, yeah. of these PSIs? All of that and more. Wow. Uh, archaeological sites, they also have. <laughs> it is hot in here. Yeah. They have evidence of flooding or abandonment. Those can also be clues. So some of these PSIs and NEVs, they have greater confidence applied to them. And like I was talking earlier, will have greater weight in the analysis. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there seems like there's, um, I guess, the really the major focus for a geologist or a geomorphologist in a paleo flood study would be on prehistoric flood deposits. Yeah. And so prehistoric then would mean anything that goes beyond the oldest record for floods on that that river. And so, you know, where do we begin this? And it's at our desks. <laughs> How exciting. Yeah. Just- yeah. It does get better, but you know, no, we, we compile lots of like established data, published geologic topographical maps in a database. And then we import high res LIDAR, hillshade terrain maps, flood of record extents, all sorts of things so that we can have a little look-see around the study area. Yeah. And just a little hint to the other geologists listening. You can download published geological maps for free. Thanks to the good old USGS. And you can find that online, yeah. right? The National Geologic Map Database. Yeah. yeah. So that's super handy. <laughs> yep. And uh, that's from in a cave. <laughs> yes. Super handy. <laughs> <laughs> I almost put something like that. Hands, oh, yeah, Anyways. Yeah, yeah, okay. yep. So then from there, we'd be on the hunt. <laughs> we'd be looking at existing maps, topographical clues, and landform identification to determine you know, where or if terrace remnants from recent historic and prehistoric flood exist within the river valley in question. Yeah, and this is probably where topographical fabric comes into play. So different landforms have specific topographic signatures, right? So alluvial fans have isolines or contour lines that spread from lateral extent to the lateral extent. (laughs) Okay, so... Yeah, that's it. Right, so you have contours that are lines of equal um, elevation. Yeah. Right, so that's... Right, so they're the... Everything on that line is the same. So terraces have relatively flat surfaces, right? They're going to have these broad, um, on the maps anyway, and if you have this smaller relief, they're going to be tightly spaced contours. Mm -hmm. In geomorphology, this is called a tread, then a riser, which is an inclined surface that slopes up from the river to the tread. Right, and so those, you know, you call them topographic signatures. I think fabric's a little bit more of a delicate thing, and that's, you know, where we start to see how terrace remnants fit as far as a datum in our study. See, whenever I read like the delicate fabric, I think of like uh, cowboys that just put Vaseline on their gloves Jeez. so they would have soft hands. Well, what is that? The, the dog movie with... Uh. 
Benedict Cumberbatch. The dog movie? <clears throat> you know what I'm talking about. He's a cowboy. Am I the only one? Okay, so no, there's this book, like Two Mice and Men. Of, of mice, mice and Men, yeah. Okay, yeah, but he wears the, the glove. He wears the glove to please his wife. Oh, because he, he keeps a soft hand in it. It doesn't get all roughed up, right? It's oh. Vaseline in there. For his wife. Wow. That's what I think of, anyways. <laughs> yeah. But hold we on. We need gloves. Let's define datum real quick. <laughs> Yes. Datum. So what Brian is referring to here is almost equivalent to mapping units. So <laughs> if you look to like a topographic map or a geologic map, if you will, you know, you'll see the like the QAL or the QT, right? The QD. QD. So these are map units, but within them are subdatums. So in paleo flood studies, we may have a RA, which is recent alluvium. HT1 is a Holocene Terrace 1, Holocene Terrace 2, Holocene Terrace 3. Then we'll have like the Quaternary Terrace. A quaff, a quaternary alluvial fan, and then like a QC, which is the quaternary colluvium. Yeah. <laughs> Damn it. <laughs> I love colluvium all over you. <laughs> wow. Okay. <clears throat> so when we. <laughs> Uh, All right. <laughs> so when we're mapping remotely, what we're or doing? well, even when we're doing field <laughs> reconnaissance, we won't know the true age of the terraces right. or their underlying deposits, but we can put together an interpretation and place terraces in appropriate datums based on uh, things like terrace height above channel and position in comparison to other terraces and the contour fabric. Yeah, right. Okay. So I, I recall something from the old uni days, if you will, with the boys all day. Chops. Yeah. Uh, the fabric is not only the landform and topographic signature, but also how the isolines or contours appear. So we can describe them as smooth, curvy, wavy, angular, or splotchy, right? <laughs> it's a splotchy look. That. But so these are these are crude ways to describe it, but they are actually pretty good representations, if you will, on how contours can look on a small scale map of a river valley and their associated terraces. That brings up, you know, surficial processes and their effect on the earth which affects how topographical lines appear once maps are made. Right. Um, younger deposits will usually have a rough fabric. It'll appear slightly angular or I got to say it again, splotchy. But, you know, that hey, may have many small mounds shown on the map on the surface. But older deposits will have much more time to be reshaped and smoothed by surficial processes like rainfall, wind erosion, animals and, and humans. Uh, the humans yeah. again. We ruin it all. But I, I hope you see where I'm going with this. I think so. So I'm going to give it a try. So I would get my fancy maps and terrain models and map out different terraces and their surfaces. But what we know is that it can be tricky. Say, for instance, there is a uh, a low terrace above a channel. So a slightly higher terrace and then a high terrace, right? So yeah. like high tide, low tide, low high tide and high low <laughs> tide. Anyways, so river downcutting and geomorphology would traditionally say that the high terrace is oldest and then the river downcuts with the other high velocity flows and deposited the material of Terrace 2. And then as you would suspect more downcutting, probably right, um, how you'd explain it is that the deposit becomes a true Terrace. And then there's this more or MOAR, M-O-A-R, downcutting, deposition, scouring, and you have much younger Terrace below that. And that's yeah, a lot of downcutting. You're, you're a downer, man. Yeah, I'm yeah. such a downer. <clears throat> I'm like, Fuck it, capitalism. <laughs> 
No, that was last week. Yeah. Uh, okay. Har har. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> but okay, so it, it's entirely possible that a massive high magnitude flood came in the high overbanks. <laughs> <laughs> it is entirely possible that a massive high magnitude flood came and in the high overbanks, let's say even as high as a terrace one, it deposited a nice massive sand sheet. <laughs> yeah. And then uh, all that by the book, the traditional geomorphology approach doesn't work. So you look to the fabric to give you kind of these clues of the relative age. So you said a mouthful, but you're right on. So let's let's say that high sand sheet has a very rough fabric that it's young, right? It hasn't had much time to smooth out yet. Now we can place the terrace remnants in defendable datums. So I say your high surface is likely HT2 or Holocene Terrace 2. Yep. We always put like HT1 would be the oldest, right? You work you work down from that. So the next lowest terrace I would call HT3 and you know those could be swapped depending on soils. We'll get into that. But then the lowest terrace would be HT4. Where's HT1? Well, it's either conformably or unconformably underlying the HT2 or HT3 deposit. It may be exposed somewhere in a scour cut or a surface adjacent to the highest sand sheet deposit. The the field would provide you clarity, right, going out there. So you mentioned soils again. So there is this next clue in our puzzle. So um, if we pretend we go out on the site, hike out, find a nice exposure of the soils, or if needed, we dig a pit at the top of these surfaces and open up a beer and stare at the soil for a bit, and we think. Yeah, that's what I do every I th- day. You thunk. You just open up a beer. <laughs> yeah, we I do. Thunked it's, it's about nice. it. But yeah, so we go out, we get calibrated. I would I would start at the river. Inebriated and calibrated. You can be both. Okay, but, I got you. but yeah, you want to look at the recent alluvium. What is the watershed currently bringing down channel, right, and depositing? So we get calibrated on that. Then we go to our lowest deposit. We see that it basically has no soil development. It is deposited materials. We check our map. We have it as HT4. That kind of lines up where the hydrologist put the flood of record extent. So we may be looking at the flood of record deposit yeah. right there at our lowest terrace. So then we grab an OSL sample. So we, we look at each other. We have another beer. We celebrate that our mapping is maybe correct so far and we aren't class A dum-dums, but there's nothing <laughs> wrong with being class A dum-dums. Yeah. I'm, I'm always one. So yeah. And so Mr. Baggins, let's go to the next highest terrace, right? So <laughs> then there really isn't a going to be a good scour exposing the deposits here in our scenarios. It's covered by your colluvium (laughs) and it looks very (laughs) it looks very snaky. So it's just like just dripping down. No, I guess that's not what colluvium is. Uh, So it's covered by colluvium and it looks snaky. Best not to get bit. Yeah. I throw a shovel at you and we dig a pit. You're making me rhyme here. (laughs) I know. Sorry. Okay. But we discovered the soil has formed on the deposit. And so we got we need to do some soil classification. We see a 30 centimeters thick A horizon. Then below that, we have a BW soil horizon and then a BK horizon, then a C. So does that match our preliminary mapping? Well, where's the E? That so, is uh, usually much older. Okay, so it's had more time to develop. Much, much, much. But more you time. said you had the A, right? It usually goes O, A, E. No, O, A, B usually. 
that one they teach you is is very old. Yeah. Most of the ones in our areas, like on anything Pleistocene and, and younger, do not have an e-horizon. Okay. In this area. Okay. To what you were saying, I don't think so, Mr. Baggins. Uh, so we placed this deposit at HT3, but these are going to be, like you are saying, fairly mature soils, especially with the BK horizon. So in this area of the world, those tend to take quite a while to form. So with the whole regolith, sorry, is that yeah. what we're including in here? Or no? Pretty much. And a BK horizon would be, it has a lot of carbonate accumulation and you'll have carbon carbonate filaments that form. And those, you know, could take thousands of years. But I guess this isn't traditionally like regolith, right? This is the, the flood stuff coming in, being deposited. Uh, or I guess from that is what it's, anyways. Yeah. So this may be older than we previously thought, but we still don't know enough yet. So I need you to grab an OS sample and those A and C horizon, then let's keep getting higher. Higher we go. Oh. <laughs> All right, we climb to the highest surface. There we are. We notice that below us, there's a scarp exposing the there's deposit. There's a scarp over there. Very bald. Scarp. <laughs> All right, we noticed that near the top of the deposit, it's heavily cemented. Hey, man, this looks cemented. Yeah, it does. It's hard. And the soils are pretty red. Did you notice that the red color? I did. It's 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 super red. Like, what's a good red color? Verminion. That's a good one. I oh, I was going to say like a Sith Lord's eyes. Oh, yeah, that'd be oh. good too. Yeah, Sith <laughs> red. Sith, Sith red. red. Sith red. This is old AF. Probably Pleistocene, maybe older. I asked you for the map. Well, here's the map. Here you go. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> we notice that from where we're standing on top of the exposure, there's still about 10 feet in elevation. Man, we it need looks to like get. if you fall, you'd go down 10 feet there, Brian. But we need to go up 10 feet to the top of that terrace tread. You think we need to go up there? I think so. Okay. And I think we need to dig a pit up there. Let's go. And I'll dig. Because that's where, remember, the fabric was rough Ooh, and splotchy. Should have kept his hand in a in a glove. <laughs> okay, but oh, let's have let's, let's let's have a cheers for. First. All right. <laughs> it's a labor of love. Okay, beer. We clinked. We're digging our pit at the highest surface and whoa, <laughs> man, look, there's this AACC horizon. What? What? Yeah. So this is uh, what it looks like to me. I'm taking, I'm looking at it. It's a uh, fine, 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 glorious loamy sand. Yeah. Ooh. You put it in your mouth. Why did uh. you do that? Oh, man. It's gritty a little bit. A little bit of silt. silt yeah. yeah. So is this, this is what you were talking about in class. Oh yeah, how you can tell the difference between cl- yeah. silt and clay. Yeah. So it's older if it's finer. No, no, not necessarily. I, would, I was, I was just, <laughs> just from this A A C C horizon. It's it's young just in this sample because he wrote it. Because they don't take. An A horizon doesn't take very long to form. Okay. So you have a deposit, but it sits there and it weathers and you'll start to form these horizons that don't have anything to do with the deposit, just time and weathering. Is horizon referring to like Just a lines? straight line. Yeah. It's That's all it is, is, is a way to distinguish how the depth of soil weathering. So, so an why, A horizon is- Why it blows my mind that there's not like an E horizon where you have like the, the it alleviation. Takes, yeah. It takes longer. The B, the B or E may be absent in the- this area bees are highly prevalent but you do see a lot of leaching though in some of these but not i guess not necessarily we're but we're got to keep in mind that we're talking about like river and those deposits right not necessarily out here looking at no like bedrock stuff versus new fluvial stuff yeah Yeah. so i get what we're saying here we're we're cooking with bacon grease now yeah yep so this is young it looks like so not as young as the lower terrace deposits that we were just looking at but much younger than the other two so ah there is a piece of charcoal in the ac horizon <laughs> yep and why so- brian <laughs> 
God. This is probably our HT3. Yeah, you know me. Yeah. It unconformably then overlies the HT1 deposit. And by the way, nice job on spotting that charcoal. I need you to wrap that up in foil. We're going to send it off to the radiocarbon lab. We're going to do that. Well, now we're going to grab our PVC samplers. We're going to pound it in. (laughs) Yeah, we are. (laughs) That sounds like it would in the C horizon. (laughs) (laughs) Either way you want to take that, the A or the C. Oh. And so we carefully cap these and (laughs) we've successfully gathered our last OSL samples for this particular field site. And most importantly, we identified three usable PSIs. Man, so that's it, man. We're just going to go home, wait for the OSL samples to come back. (laughs) Pretty much. Yeah. Uh, Well, okay. Real quick, for time's sake, let's tell the listeners what the hell an OSL is. And that's going to, that's for the sake of time. That is. I think we're literally extending it out. So, oh yeah, but the optical stimulated luminescence. So basically yeah. in a poetic way of saying <clears throat> I like poems. It is the lost time <laughs> light hath touched the sun. Bravo. That's good. Yeah, that was very good. Alright. Oh, 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 oh. Wait, yeah, I feel like you need to read this. Yeah, he's better at that. <laughs> so yeah, uranium, thorium, potassium, and rubidium. swine. <laughs> Electrons get trapped in the valence bands of crystal of the crystal lattice of minerals like quartz, and the lab will measure ionization radiation that's produced by light or really intense heat. The dosage is what's calculated, and then they do this weird voodoo magic thing and other Basically, calculations. Yeah. <laughs> and then we get an age estimate on the last exposure to light, which would be the pre-burial of that particular grain of sediment. Right, right. So we use this age, and we use our team's estimated discharge. It's so gross. <laughs> Q in the equation for the flood that laid down each of these deposits, right? So that estimation would be elicited by each of the team members and then a best fit average is taken. It's good to have a well-rounded team of geologists, hydrologists, hydraulic engineers to make sure you cover any variables that could change in the discharge estimation. And then once we have an estimated discharge of a ground truth real deposit and the age of the deposit, we can then have a model of much higher confidence that'll show the probability of how high and how often our dams loaded. Yeah. Then we evaluate the risk of the dam. See, is it worth, you know, the 30 to $50 million at the minimum to do a major modification to raise the dam or whatever? Damn. Damn. The end. That's all there is to paleo floods. <coughs> just kidding. So, it's so just the that's it. That's surface. all paleoanal does. Yep. Kind of anticlimactic. Yeah. So like the earlier part where, you know, you had the fake guy with the possum. <laughs> yeah. Um, so my aunt and uncle actually live like right on the Brazos. Oh, nice. My right there and so it was like a running family joke for a while that my uncle always built a dock and like (laughs) every time they opened up the dam it would just take that dock away and he built a new dock like i don't know how many times before finally he was like fuck it yeah no more dock because i don't get why why they um why they flood it they will send a send a call (laughs) or something to my Mm -hmm. aunt and uncle and be like we're about to open this dam up so you either need to get going or pack your stuff up yeah so So i don't get that i I can explain that so the reason they do that is the dam is there that dam is there for flood control so if they wasn't there they would be flooded really often and much worse 
but the dam will hold enough water and then we get into higher probability of risks and that will either be yeah the water may if we continue on this path of holding in water it may overtop which the dam if dams overtop they don't do very well <laughs> that's just water going going over but then that water will then start eroding the dam Underneath and think about cutting. the lake that is that dam is holding then oh. coming all down and wiping not only just like the farmers around but whatever like the Brazos goes through what like even Waco and stuff right mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Waco would be done millions of people would die and what's that just like velocity or it's just flood magnitude and and velocity and just the amount of water mm. so the height of water but that's not the only way a dam could could go each dam has its own failure modes that drive the risk and so you may have a dam like the brazos is a really sandy area around that right like there are a lot of the rocks in, in subsurface is sand mm-hmm. or sandstone and so if you load it enough you put enough pressure on that foundation that then you start migrating materials and you can form what's called a pipe. And it's an it's a natural pipe that water will start plucking the foundation out. And then you have a massive hole under your dam that if enough water and pressure due to the water goes through there, then it starts ruining the dam and the dam will fail. And then you have <laughs> catastrophic flooding. Like, yeah. oh, brother, where art thou? He brought up that like thing yeah. earlier. That dam that like broke and everyone just gets washed away. Like, yeah, that's. So that's why they release water is to keep it from getting to Over the top. L- that or a level that they've defined as a problem. Yeah, because also, too, you have all that that pressure too, right? Pushing against it whenever yeah. it's it's not so like the the one that they're fixing in Louisville, right? Or is it yeah. Louis like Louisville that's yeah. kind of like leaking or is that grapevine? No, it's it's Louisville. It's Louisville. And I can't comment on that. <gasps> uh oh. We found something that we can start pressing them on. So well, tell us about the dam in Louisville no. again. Like right? if that that will F Dallas up. Like yeah, if that like fail, it would like, kill millions. Like Dallas millions. would just be like wipe out. Yeah. And it like that's why pretty like, rapidly. so much money goes into it. That's why people like me have a job. Could you imagine yeah. if the all of Lake Louisville just, just starts <laughs> Painting <laughs> out and it would go towards downtown Dallas. Yeah, it'd be. You know what I think about? Like, it's like let's hope those damn guys, those damn guys, damn guys, do their job. Well, ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> we went long today. We did. So we're. <laughs> I guess we're not going to do it that freaking rocks. We don't but have one. Whenever anyway. we, I'll get someone for next week. Rain I it promise. in again. Welcome, Carly. You shouldn't have had that at the beginning, but I yeah. didn't think of that. We started getting into it. And then I guess pause, pause, but this is for the <laughs> listeners too. before the show. We were talking about, oh, yeah. Hey, we're all going to try to pronounce the I have to from the, the tens word. from the 10 days of or th- I, I feel like if you see the word, it makes it worse. Yeah, that's you why don't, I don't look each, at it. see I'm spelling it how I would say it. I have a jokel. <laughs> I thought I had that. What did I, I say? I have a jackal. 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 Okay. Okay. See, I can't even just. Oh, there it is. It say actually it. Pulled up. No, don't. Don't pronounce it or anything because I'm going to play how it's supposed to be said. I say it's I have a jackal. You say I say I have a jackal. And how did you say it? I have a jackal. All ice caps in Iceland. This ice cap covers the caldera of a volcano with a summit elevation of around 1651 meters or about 5,400 feet. How do you go about pronouncing this Icelandic word? 
Sorry about my colluvium. <laughs> it's okay. You got it in my cave, so. <laughs> and it's just what we call these days paleo anal because we're old. <laughs> oh, shit, what? In my anal. <laughs> Damn it. Anal Y S's. <laughs> Yeah. Meat stick. Did you just say Panel Olympics? That's what we call it. Was does That's going like Fuck it. Painful anal anal. Last week, too. Damn it. I did. I blew. I blew. Whoa. Whoa. Is that yeah. a Freudian slip? You put it in your mouth. Why'd you do that? Call me a cave, Brian. So, wait, wait, wait. Okay. <laughs> ah. <laughs> <That> colluvium. <laughs> you were colluvium no. all over me. Okay, that's some lit anal.